0: Hello listeners, my name is Rad Singhal and welcome to another episode of Breaking Investment Stereotypes. This episode is brought to you by Multiply.co where we believe that investing is an ignored life skill. Our mission is to create a platform where people can come, learn, share, and collaborate through the right tools. Ultimately, we want your hard-earned money to work for you. Here at Breaking Investment Stereotypes, my job is to deconstruct world-class investors or wealth managers and deep dive into their investing journey, professionally, personally, or both. I want to give a little guidance on how to use this shows. None of the following should be taken as an investment advice. Please see multiply.co slash disclosures for more information. My guest for today is Ronak Onkar. Ronak Onkar is a co-fund manager and the research head at PPFAS Mutual Fund. After a bachelor's in IT and an MBA in finance, Ronak started his capital market journey with PPFAS over a decade ago. As an analyst, he covers a variety of businesses and sectors and he's a regular speaker at PPFAS Monthly Financial Opportunities Forum series which you can watch on YouTube. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ronak Ankar. Hey Ronak, let me start with your career which has been like mine. You know you joined Parag Parekh, which is more known as PPFAS as a young intern and have since grown to become the co-fund manager and head of research at the AMC. So many congratulations on your journey. So can you talk a little bit about this trajectory and how was it evolved with one organization? Thank you, Rajkumar. Yeah, it's been a hell of a journey and I cannot believe it's been so long.
1: The interesting part is when I was doing my MBA, uh, even before that, when I was doing my graduation in IT, uh, this bug for uh, investing got in somehow. I don't know why. And kept on reading about Buffett and uh, Ben Graham and all those sources that everybody has l- read from in the beginning or the early part of their career. And that was fascinating. And by the time I was in my third year of graduation, I realized that owning an IT business was better than working for an IT organization. Natural progression was to do an MBA. And during my MBA, uh, there is a period of internship, and that's when. I approached PPFS. It was the only company on my list. I had no other company I could have gone to. If they would have said no, then probably I would have found something out. But the reason why PPFS was so interesting is at that time, Paragbhai was the only person who used to write about behavioral finance in the open. And I don't think anybody from Indian markets was actually talking about those topics. And it was quite fascinating. So I got lucky, uh, got into PPFS. It was exactly what I expected in the way that I was thinking that I would get to learn through Paragbhai, through Rajiv, through Jigar, who was my boss at that time, through Arpit, my friend, who introduced me to PPFS. Since then, the moment you step in, you know, you go to the library, you know that people are reading a very eclectic collection of books, and that continues even today. We build a good library in the organization, uh, and it was a learning organization from the get-go, uh, and you could understand that everybody, the emphasis was to learn and grow and help the organization that way, and that emphasis continues even today. So, I think that's the brief journey, how I got into PPFS, and... I think it's just because I've been there for a long time and uh, got a chance to grow with the firm, got a chance to learn from the best people I could ever imagine learning from. I think that's how I've ended up here.
0: So that's that's very fascinating. I know the, to have something plan out as as you thought about it. That that's that's a great one. And you spoke about. Uh, behavioral part of investing and you know of late i've been realizing that uh, the behavioral aspect has been so important so we'll come to the behavioral aspect later but before that you know I would, how would you describe uh, ppfas mutual funds investment philosophy i mean you know you you actually don't too hard i uh, been two hats. one is research and also as a co-fund manager uh, and how has it evolved over last few years the process is actually simple it
1: is appreciate uh, we generally look for good quality
0: businesses uh, run by competent
1: people whom we can trust. And we don't like to overpay for those businesses. And although these three things sound very simple, but the combination of these three things coming together and actually b- being able to build a portfolio, that's the hard part. And of course, valuations are cyclical. So they test you. you like the business, but the price is not right? Or you don't like the business, but the price is so attractive. What do you do about it? or people, so the first emphasis has always been that you find the right people. I mean, if you can understand the business, that is one step, you can understand the accounting, that is the second step, but can you really trust the people? And that is from the past actions of the business promoters or the management, you get a chance to see how they have behaved and the real emphasis goes there. And that is the make or break decision for creating the portfolio. From a research perspective, uh, what we do is we spread out, uh, don't want to spread out too thin across too many companies and too many sectors, So we pre-filter a lot of these things, we make an investment universe. Currently the investment universe comprises of around 700 companies, which is in itself a very large list. I think two thirds of it are Indian businesses and a third of them are international businesses because we also are able to invest outside of India. Within that list, we divide across sectors and we try and tell the analysts that they need to become the sector experts so that they can give us good insights, they can tell us when is the right time to invest in something, when is the right time to hold or sell something. And that's what informs the investment team's decision
0: about uh, where we want to steer the portfolio that's very interesting about you guys that you, you're kind of a pioneer about actively investing offshore as well and we'll come to that uh, later but you know one debate and you spoke about this whole spectrum of companies about 700 and you have all kind of companies in that one debate in industry is around the relevance of valuation right or or p specifically for long-time investing so what's your take on this i mean how do you think the broader market uh, or pockets therein are overvalued now as you know a lot of people say as seen from the typical lens of p ratio
1: p ratio just like many of the other valuation multiples uh, they are just a, a metric that you use to quickly gauge in comparison with something else so these are all relative metrics in technical language if you can say that uh, and what the relative metrics means is if you say if you want to compare two companies whose earnings are sustainable and can grow consistently over a long period of time Then comparing their P-E ratios in the same industry might give you some idea that where the market is evaluating the company is in terms of quality, in terms of its growth prospects, etc. Then you have other ratios that you can add. You can have a cash flow yield, you can have a dividend yield, you can have a golden growth model or dividend discount model, which have been the classic corporate finance models to value companies. The point is not one thing will tell you the right answer. In fact, we don't even want the right answer because valuation generally is a range. It's not going to be a very precise decimal accurate answer where we say that, okay, if the PE multiple hits this particular target, then we are supposed to buy or if it hits the particular target, then we're supposed to sell. We'll actually look at PE multiples or any of these valuation multiples as a range of indicators, which give us a good idea of where the particular business is trading at. And you can then compare across uh, various cycles. You can compare that across uh, various points in the business as to where they are in the growth phase, how big that company is in terms of assets and how those assets have scaled. So you can overlay a lot of other information on top of that. And then it gives you a sense that, okay, the PE multiple or any other valuation multiple you have used makes sense to look at from that point of view. To give you an example, for the longest time, uh, we have been studying the business called Amazon. And Amazon, if you see just from a price to earnings multiple, long part of the history of the listing of this, business has been in triple digit price to earnings multiple. Famously, if you read the annual report and the shareholder letter by Jeff Bezos, we get the focus on cash flows, but the investors that we are in terms of the Ben Graham mindset that we have to find cheap price to earning multiple businesses, you tend to gravitate towards companies who are, okay, it's a good enough business run by good people, but let me just not pay too much in terms of PE. But then you have to question yourself, is PE the right metric, if the companies, I mean, if you look at the annual reports uh, in the US, most of them start with the balance sheet, the income statement, and then the cash flow statement. The Amazon's annual report is unique. It starts with the cash flow statement. The first thing you see is what the company's operating cash flow is. And that's a unique way of looking at things. And if the management is running their business with that focus, it only makes sense for the investors also to look at the same metrics as they judge themselves. So it took us a while for us to understand the different segments of the business. Despite being customers of Amazon, we could not become investors of Amazon as soon as the company hit in India. So it took us a while to readjust our scales uh, and say that, okay, maybe P is not the right multiple to look at this company. Let's look at another multiple, say a free cash flow or an operating cash flow yield. And how the cost of capital of this business is compared to that over a period of time. And are they incrementally generating higher rates of return by investing their own cash flow internally? So they have not raised money from the outside. They have borrowed a little bit here and there, but they haven't really raised money from the outside. So it's a self-sustaining machine where some business generates cash. It is deployed somewhere else at an incrementally higher rate. And then you get lucky in terms of which pockets of the business works. That's a different aspect, which cannot be captured in the PE uh, from the get-go. So I think any multiple we look at is going to be a range and not a precise uh, target or a decimal accurate number. And that's where I think the first genesis of the idea started that maybe is this the right metric to look at or is the combination of various metrics to look at?
0: I think Amazon is a very, uh, you know, interesting example. And I was just reading that, you know, a I mean, you know, you're right about there, you know, they focus on the cash flow statement and then they keep generating cash in one business and deploy another. And AWS was a clear example of where actually they deployed and it became a, such a huge business for them. It also does one more thing that since you're not profitable uh, because you're spending money actually as investment. And you know a lot of that is going in intangible investments as well, You know, which is becoming a great focus after people like Michael mobashin and all those have started speaking about. The competition doesn't focus too much because they are only focusing on that. you're You are not profitable, you're burning money. And how long will you sustain by burning money? But they're not realizing that by the time they have gone ahead so long uh, that nobody can catch them, right? I was always amazed that Jeff Bezos was able to hold 25% of equity of such a large company and never diluted because they never raised external equity. So it's incredible to learn some of those businesses. You know, I heard you talk a lot about your concept on conviction, you know, being one of your core principles. So can you explain your process of building conviction in a thesis, either as an industry or a stock? And, and why is that so important? Conviction, I think, is a concept I have read when I was learning about investing. I still learn. And a lot of
1: these senior investors, they talk about conviction uh, either directly or indirectly about talking about their investment journey. And the point is nobody has defined it. So I just took it upon myself to put a definition to it, saying that if you can take a calculated risk with confidence and you can stick with that decision, that's your conviction. And uh, there have been a lot of frameworks. So the most popular framework, which was easy for me to visualize, uh, was the three-pronged approach uh, that you build some informational edge, then you build some analytical edge, and then you marry that with the behavioral edge. So the information edge is easy. You just uncover as much information as you can about a business and build that mental framework of how the company works, how the people work. And by information, I don't mean insider information. This is like a long-term trend of how the business has performed, how the sector has performed. And insider information, the cheapest and the most easiest to get but it's pointless because then you have to keep on relying on that same source or a different source to tell you short-term triggers in fact if you're looking at a longer-term trend what helps you is to see what the company has done what the industry is doing build that information database first the problem with information is it is only data it is not knowledge so then you have to analyze that data you have to then figure out what is useful filter out the less useful part uh, then look at only the data which is really relevant for that particular business and then you build an analytical framework on top of that. And that framework can be very simple. I mean, the term sounds very sophisticated, but it is not. It's basically if you want to look at a paint's business, then you want to understand how is their distribution, how is their gross profit margin, how is their return on capital over a period of time, how much they save on manufacturing in different types of categories, how is the segment mix, all those analytical aspects you can build on top of that. And you compare all these analytical aspects with the other competing businesses in that category. And thirdly, I think is the most critical part where we don't give too much thought because there is no framework available over there. It's just a temperament which you build over a period of time. So if you are a temperament of a person where you want to trade more often and you don't rely, you don't trust information at all, you don't trust yourself at all in terms of being able to hold on to something which is valuable. You might go in and out of really good businesses and you may not get a chance to get. Uh, into them again at a good price if you are a person with a temperament where saying okay uh, if i've made a decision i will hold on to it i will keep on monitoring it for a while and that gives you a long enough time frame to study the business and uh, invest and then you meaningfully build a portfolio around that then you have a longer term template i mean these things sound very easy to say uh, but every day when you see the prices and your portfolio moving up and down the temperament is the part where all the information analytical work really pays off where you're able to hold on to good ideas, where you're able to enter at the right price, where everybody is screaming that the world is on fire, you need to just see through the smoke and say, okay, this is a particular thing It is interesting and this is available at a cheap valuation. Let me just uh, pick something up in my portfolio because it's always been in my list. So I think the investment universe helps that because then you can track all these companies you like. They may not be investable immediately, but they give you some kind of a grocery list that, okay, this if this happens, then this can be a good part of the portfolio at a certain valuation. So you build that temperament over a period of time it doesn't come immediately so it, i don't i don't still think that i have the temperament to really be a very good investor maybe time will tell but i think the first two bits is the invest information edge and the analytical edge can be built by discipline and a good work ethic the temperament actually just time in the market if you survive then you learn if you learn then you can apply and see test different scenarios and you can diversify so diversification i think is the easiest template to follow from behavioral point of view that if you're not sure about one or two businesses then maybe own 10 maybe 120, maybe 130. I mean, depending on how diverse you are and how much time you have in tracking all these positions.
0: I think temperament is also more about understanding uh, yourself as well, right? And it's a big part of the whole behavioral analysis which somebody needs to do. And we normally, most of the people actually don't do that. And then we'll come to uh, some of this uh, in, in the in the later part. I want to bring in this whole modern monopolies. And, uh, you know, we have recently had Saurabh Mukherjee on our podcast as well. And he talks a lot about that. How do you define a moat in the current age? I mean, and do you think the technology companies have an edge in the near future?
1: I think traditionally what moat is, uh, I mean, these are all academic words that we are using now, like moat or a competitive advantage and all those things. But how does it translate to the financial metrics of a particular business? So if a company can sustain its gross margin over a long period of time, uh, if a company can sustain the return on capital for a long period of time, or even grow it over a period of time, if a company can also grow its uh, sales and profits over a long period of time, it can be whatever growth rate, doesn't matter. But of course, there is competition, there is new forces coming in, international companies coming into your country and selling in the same category. But despite all of this, you can still maintain your business well. I think then theoretically, the company has a good moat, which is a good defense against the competitors out there. Now, how this moat is created is a totally different uh, ball game. So it is difficult to learn from The outside what is happening first of all and most companies will not just come and tell you hey this is my competitive advantage and this is what i'm doing so uh, you can copy if you want And, and no you cannot be that arrogant most companies are very very secretive they are they're competitive organizations and that that is the fun part of understanding the analysis is over there where you uh, talk to different people in the industry, you uh, build a network of people who are telling you that, okay, in this industry, this is happening. This is what has happened in the past. So this is the trend. And then you piece it together yourself. You may get it wrong, but the point is the effort has to be put in to understand where there is the source of this competitive advantage. I mean, the outcome is known, but the process is generally not known as to how that thing has gone from cause to effect. So that is one thing. Like, so from a uh, simple definition point of view, I think the definition of mode has not changed, but the way you approach Understanding that mode should be changed over a period of time as you try different businesses. So for example, again, a company like Amazon, uh, bulk of its incremental value, uh, we knew was coming from a business which they are new at. At that time, they were new at, which was a cloud computing business. Okay, we knew e-commerce, we understood retail, we understood the marketplace business and little bit of prime, the media business also. But what is this cloud computing business and where do you get the competitive advantage over there? So you talk to people in the technology field, you understand how these companies work, what are the gross margins for running this particular business? What are the incremental innovations happening? How are people adopting it? Some of the things you also learn when you become a customer yourself. So the PPFS app is using AWS to some extent for some functions. And when you log in, you realize the whole world of AWS uh, gadgets and features available at your disposal to run your app properly, to make sure how you're using the service servers and how much time you're spending over there, how much money you're spending over there, how it can be optimized, what new incremental features can help you run the app better and save money. So when you see all those things happening, I mean, we are a very small organization with a small development team who can do that. But if you scale it up to much larger organizations who are now depending on the cloud, you immediately see that there is value over there. And not just for Amazon, any of the competitors who are having a good uh, cloud computing business available. So this information doesn't come to you uh, maybe in the annual report, it won't come to you by reading some media articles or just talking to a few people. Will, over a period of time, keep on incrementally building that knowledge and not knowing where it is leading to. But your goal is known that you have to understand this business as to what, ha- what is happening. And you can in the end have only two options. One is you understand to some extent where the probability of you getting it wrong is lower. So you then pull the trigger and say, okay, now this makes sense to invest. Or the other one is you put it in a too difficult box. Then it's something which is impossible to understand and I won't be able to track it or understand it at all. So you put it in that box and that company then goes out of your radar altogether. So I think the conviction, moat, and all these things are built in together where if you put in the effort to understand the competitive advantage, only then that moat is valuable to you as an investor. Otherwise, it exists in some realm, imaginary fantasy land, where
0: you are not able to see it from your vantage point. So I think you, you you mentioned about, while talking about conviction, about information and how do you consume the incoming information as well. So there is a little doubt that, you know, we are in an information age. And how do one approach a behavioral aspect of investing given the so much of information overload? How do you decide what information to consume and what to ignore, right? The amount of technical information is doubling every two years, which basically means that a student who's starting a four-year Technical college, half of what they learn in their first year of study will be outdated by their third year of study. So, how does one navigate this whole overload of information? So,
1: academically, I go back to the example of my IT graduation days where we learned about uh, the semiconductor chip, which was called 8086. Now, it is the mm-hmm. very oldest model of the microprocessor out there, which is, I think, uh, 10,000, 15,000 times less powerful than what we are using today, right now, to talk to each other. I mean, even more than that, I think this is even uh, less powerful than current computer. But the point is, you have to learn some basics somewhere. So academics will prepare you to some extent to understand the basics as to what has been taught in the past. Like, for example, in finance, the basics of this will be uh, how to understand compounding, how to understand uh, financial accounting, how to understand corporate finance and understand how the budgeting happens in a company, how decisions are made inside the company. And whichever role you take in finance, all these things will help you to build that foundation that is the it is a must i mean anybody if you are not even qualified with a certification with you you okay. have to still read it to understand okay. what is actually happening in the company's balance sheet or the company's financial state the second bit is to build the habit of consuming what is relevant and that doesn't come very easy so i mean if i look at myself 10 years back when i used to read annual reports i used to go cover to cover like an idiot now i feel like an idiot but at that time it was necessary to go from cover to cover to know what was relevant inside that piece of document and what was not relevant. So then over a period of time, you start building filters. Okay, in a company like this, these kind of numbers are more relevant. So you focus on those numbers more. And I think now we are in a situation where the data is already laid out to you. So there are free tools available like Ticker or Screener where all the numbers are laid out. You have uh, tools like Tijori who have the uh, operating metrics also laid out to you, the competitor analysis also done for you. So most of the stuff which you would have read the annual report for is already being displayed for you and for free. Uh, for everyone to use. So it's not like the financial institutions have a monopoly on some information or not. The second point is, if you understand that information is out there and you have learned to filter it, now you have to synthesize it. There should be an archival system where you remember what you've read. So for that reason, you have to keep going back to it again and again. So that's why you need to have a limited number of companies you can track so that that information which is relevant for you, you can keep updating that over a period of time. Moment you have like a huge number of companies to track uh, by as an individual, It becomes very hard to synthesize everything properly because you're reading everything. And thirdly, most people have this dramatic approach. So I I read this book uh, by Cal Newport called Deep Work, and it has profoundly moved and created some good habits for me. But at the same time, I find some of the things to be very radical. So of course, different people have different ways of uh, implementing it. uh, But his thing is you unplug completely from social media and everything, and you sit and do your work for a few hours at a stretch. And that I think is the most important thing. I start to try to follow. You keep your mobile phone away. You keep your notifications on pause. And when you're reading something critical or reading something which is uh, like a good dense information piece, like an annual report or an industry report, or just studying an industry for that matter, it can be day in day out. You can do it for a few months at an end. But basically, you're doing that work. You need to dedicate a few blocks of hours in a day to keep on doing it. It's like studying for an exam. You cannot just read for five ten minutes then go on your instagram and scroll the feed and come back and read something and then expect you to remember and retain and synthesize everything that kind of a habit which is a little radical for most people i think it is required to be followed because we are distracted very easily to be quite often thirdly once you have that concentration once you have the information sources which you want to learn from everything in place then all you have to do is start putting it together and that does not take too much time because once you know what you're looking at you know exactly where to look for uh different guidance if you want to talk to somebody in a particular industry you know exactly which person to tap and for that you use your creativity you tap into your uh, immediate network of friends you tap into the linkedin network professional networks you reach out to people you do cold calling there's a lot of on the ground work which is invisible from the outside and there are then patterns which you can use so for example there are two books which i found uh, extremely useful One book is by uh, James Valentine. It's called Best Practices for Equity Analysts. So if you read that book, it's like a time and motion study of an analyst. Like somebody put a camera on the person's head and they watched him do the work, him or her do the work. And if you see, uh, it gives you all these day-to-day habits of what an analyst does. It can be a sell side or a buy side. And now these are the observational habits. Okay, this is how the person spent that uh, time to do that particular work. And of course, everybody has limited time in the day, but how to optimize that? So a book like Michael Schoen's Investment Checklist, which again is one of the most profound books I've read, because it's a comprehensive list of some 300 questions which you can ask about a particular business. And if you answer those questions, you know everything there is to know about that particular business. Is that enough? It's not. Because incremental information will keep coming up, but at least it will set up a good foundation of how to filter your information. Now I'm giving you these bookish examples because it's easy because it's already available out there. If these books are not available out there, probably I would have written a book about them but since they're already out there these are easier to use and you can uh, implement these templates uh, by choice you can just choose what works for you and uh, create all these network of uh, information sources
0: and the discipline of daily sitting in one place and doing your work so we'll, we'll look forward to reading your book whenever whenever you get the opportunity to write that uh, but you interesting topic you talked about is you know the coming to the zone and detoxing from digital media uh, uh, you know uh, reclaiming your time and actually incidentally there is a there is an app now called reclaim so uh, it's it basically uh, you know you can uh, uh, add to your calendar and then it puts a blocks of time during the day whatever you want you know one hour two hour and block that time for whatever purpose you want to but of course the big part of everything all of that is your own discipline right I mean you know the calendar will tell you what to do but if you don't do it uh, that, that, that's your problem I think it's a good segue. We should get into uh, the whole topping of uh, the behavioral analysis as well. And you mentioned that you learned a lot from uh, Barak Parikh let uh, So let's, let's dwell a bit more into the behavioral bias. And there are a lot of biases. And I was just reading, uh, incidentally, today only a paper from the Fidelity on that. Uh, there are biases like anchoring bias, confirmation bias. And uh, you know, right, the Muhammad Ali said that I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know that I'm right. So a lot of people have their own biases, recency bias, herd bias, uh, ambiguity, aversion bias. And there is a great uh, Daniel Ellsberg paradox on it. Uh, myopic loss bias, you know, more pain uh, in loss. There's more pain in the loss uh, than more gain in the profit. So can you talk a bit more detail about in terms of, you know, because you've been a great student of a behavioral uh, science as well, especially from the investing point of view. Uh, help us understand your way of thinking through all this.
1: So I think like most people, my education of uh, behavioral biases started from Paragbhai's articles and talking to Paragbhai. Paragbhai's books also mention all of these things. Uh, the interesting thing was the next step was to read about the sources from where these biases were researched and who dis- who discovered them, to be honest. So then you naturally come to Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, their research on all these different biases and because the experiments that they conducted uh, over the past several decades have informed them that humans are inherently biased and if you have read Daniel Kahneman's life story he also admits that this is not something you can cure yourself of. Uh, and this is something which was a little disheartening because okay I'm aware of all these biases uh, and I know what actions I need to take uh, to mitigate some of these biases but then there is no guarantee that you will be able to and you will not even know that you have uh, been succumbed to a bias or not until somebody points out, hey, this is your bias that you are looking at right now. So that was a little disheartening to, to be very honest. But the interesting point is there is another school of thought considers that Daniel Kahneman's story as only incomplete. I would say a foundation to understanding that there are biases. Then there is a school of thought and one person who has written very uh, very well about this topic is Gerd Gigerenzer from the Max Planck Institute and his books are out there. It's a fascinating to uh, read all his books and papers as well. But he says that all these biases that we talk about are not something we should avoid, but it is something we should try and cultivate and try and control them segment uh, sequentially. It should not be something where you say you can completely block yourself from confirmation bias. You can completely block yourself from anchoring. But he's saying use it in a meaningful way uh, while making decisions. So one film I like about this particular topic is uh, the film called Sully, the Tom Hanks movie. And I absolutely love it because some of the things that uh, he does so i'm not going to reveal the plot because many people have not seen the movie you do definitely watch it but uh, he's a pilot and the plane's engines uh, are on fire and uh, they don't work right after takeoff and they have a decision to make whether to land in the hudson river near new york or go back to the airport and all the numbers and metrics and analysis that the person has to do he only has a few seconds to decide there is no luxury of uh, you know hindsight and sit back and analyze what is going to happen uh, what could have been done better or whatever so, in that split moment, uh, he uses a very simple heuristic of the descent of the plane in terms of comparing the towers which were uh, in the New York City skyline. He says, okay, my descent is this fast. I won't be able to make it back. I'm going to land on the uh, Hudson River. And he miraculously saved a lot of people. The point I'm trying to make is uh, the heuristic was always there because he was an experienced pilot. He had learned to hone that heuristic, he had learned to see. what is the descent, what is the rate of descent of the particular flight? well compared to some third object which is outside. In the same way, we in the day-to-day lives also have these uh, situations where we are able to compare it. For example, a simple thing like touching a hot stuff, we might recoil our hand because the stove is hot so that we don't get burnt and that's a heuristic. Our bodies and our uh, minds are actually fine-tuned in our system so that we don't keep our hand and burn our hand on the hot stuff. Now this is a heuristic. Over a period of time, if you learn to cook, you realize that you have to bypass the heuristic in order to maybe make a roti or you know, taste a particular uh, dish you're making. Because then you have to t- train your mind that, okay, it's a little bit hot, but it will not scar you. It will not burn you. So don't worry. You have to hone that particular aspect so that you won't recoil immediately. There is a little bit warmth around you. I'm just trying to give an example from day-to-day life. and the same way, if you do it in investing, You know that anchoring happens to you, you know that uh, you are not going to escape from confirmation bias. You know that you're going to be a a hound in terms of trying to find a cause and effect relationship every time. And every correlation will start making sense to you uh, because of that particular bias. But then how to hone it, how to then build data habits so that you can get yourself out of that particular pattern. So there is a nice book which came out recently uh, based on a very nice course called Calling Bullshit. Uh, Sorry for the word. That's the title of the book and the course. The course is available for free. The book can be bought on Amazon. So basically the book distills everything that the course has taught by these two professors. I forget their name. Uh, basically they say that you have to uh, learn good data habits to filter information uh, and how to know that whats what you're reading is true. How to verify something is true or not. Again, it's not a perfect science. It's basically statistics applied over our behavioral uh, way of thinking things. Uh, but it gives you a good idea that there are ways to mitigate all these biases, uh, not to eliminate them, but helping you to learn how to meaningfully use them in day-to-day life. So I would say confirmation bias is very useful uh, in certain situations, and not certain. If you can understand the situations these are, then you can protect yourself a little bit better
0: than just knowing about confirmation bias. A lot of things in life, you know, is also about uh, doing. Con- it's it's very counterintuitive, and one of the most counterintuitive thing I have found is that you should always double down on your strength rather than working on your weakness, because that will pay you more. Because the more you struggle with your weakness, actually, it's not going to help you much. So rather than figure out what your strengths are and just double on on that. So I'm sure, and same will go for investing as well. I mean, I've been a trader on my life. Trading mindset and investing mindset is completely different, right? You know, and then we talked about the information overload as well. And, you know, there is a saying that the more you watch your portfolio, the lower your returns are because you know you end up taking some stupid decisions. As a trader, you might have to watch it day in, day out because that's your job. So understanding what you're doing. I mean, if you're trading, probably you should watch the market all the time and you know never let anybody disturb you during the market hours. But if you're investing, there's no point looking at the market on a daily basis, right? Probably, and I've been struggling with that, frankly, what is because being a trader mindset and now trying to invest, how often should I look at my portfolio? Should I Should I look at weekly? Should I look at daily? I mean, which is what I'm doing right now? Or should I look at weekly or should I look at monthly? But you know, trying to figure that out, as I think that that's where the, the art of a good investor will lie. I don't have an answer yet, but I'm sure you know one day well, I'll figure that out. So I'll come to uh, investing in the global markets as the, that's something you guys have done very proactively, right? So in the investing beyond borders strategy, the fund you know sees as a way. You guys sees as a way to diversify risk. Can you uh, explain the approach here, and also, you know, what ways do you suggest a real, env- re- uh, you know, any retail investors who wishes to invest in US or any other em- emerging market should should look at these things?
1: So the idea behind going outside to invest in companies which are not listed in India is actually quite old. So we have been tracking all these companies uh, like Google and uh, the other IT businesses out there to compare with some of the Indian companies and uh, we realized that there are some companies which are really good which have a growth trajectory for them going ahead the businesses are well run people are competent uh, but unfortunately they're not listed in india so one thing was to obviously diversify like you said uh, the geographical risk of a particular portfolio so for example if something bad happens in india uh, there is a bad election outcome or there is some INFS debacle or some other news which affects the financial markets quite severely but within india that risk does not affect uh, companies that are outside of India. So that is one way of protecting your portfolio. A little bit of volatility is reduced by doing that. So that is one primary reason to go outside. The most important reason, the second reason was, uh, these companies are not listed here, uh, but these are growth engines. These are companies which are new age technologies available out there. Uh, and you would know, you use them every day, like the smartphones we use, the softwares we use, we use them every day. Unfortunately, the source of these uh, softwares is outside of our country. We're, using, we're relying too much on technology which is not made by us. So if you're relying on that as a user and you are sometimes paying a subscription or you're, you're the product, you're actually looking at the ad and monetizing those particular tools, uh, why not have a chance to invest in them? So as an individual, uh, the problem over there is you have to either go through the mutual fund route or an ETF route uh, or the second, which is the more expensive and tax less tax efficient route is by actually putting your money, creating an account somewhere in a foreign market, a brokerage account like we create over here and then you send your orders and trade accordingly. Then you have to also take on the currency risk. You'll be unable to hedge meaningfully over there. Every time you send money from here to there, there is a Forex transaction fee. If you bring money back here, there is another transaction fee. Then there is the dividend withholding tax, which uh, most developing countries charge. There's so many other elements. You can learn about these things. It's not like it's impossible to not learn. And you can build a portfolio. You can also make returns on top of that. It's not a problem. But these two are the better ways of investing. So what we realized is uh, when uh, the mutual fund product was being created, this was the whole idea that we needed at least a third of the portfolio outside this country from geographical diversification point of view. Secondly, there are so many good businesses out there, which we would like to own, but they are unfortunately not listed in India, but these are global companies exposed to global markets. Their revenues are diversified uh, and they are new technologies and run by good people and available at discount valuations. So uh, for example, if you see many of the companies uh, which are MNC companies in India, they trade listed in India, they are traded at a far higher multiple to even sales, cash flows and earnings as compared to their parent companies. Now, in some of the cases, the growth rates have not been very, very different. It's like they are growing in a similar range Uh, at the same time, the valuations in India which you pay for a domestic subsidiary is much higher as compared to what we would pay for the parent subsidiary. So we found that arbitrage quite interesting. Uh, We used to own Nestle in the past uh, in the portfolio on that particular arbitrage, the parent company, which is a Swiss company. When you are looking at these companies, you also get a chance to compare them with your domestic peers who are listed in India. So for example, if you're looking at a global company like, say, uh, auto business or uh, IT services business in India, They're actually quite globalized and the forces that affect an Indian auto or IT company will also affect some of the global companies. So the analyst actually gets a wide spectrum of data points to study uh, when they look at these sectors. And they can have more informed insights rather than just looking at a very domestic issue and then not looking at a longer term thing as to what is happening across the world. So, for example, if you're an auto analyst, you need to know what is happening in the electric vehicle market space all over the world. So, that it might eventually come to India. You cannot just sit on your laurels and say, I only understand Indian auto companies, and it is 25 years away when EV will come to India, so I will not bother about the impact of EV. That's not how you would analyze an auto business or if you're looking at an process or a TCS, you will want to look at companies like Accenture, Cognizant, or Capgemini, Gemini, all these businesses outside, because these are uh, business models which are similar, but they are run in dramatically different ways, because you can see the difference in gross margins, you can see the difference in net profit margins of all these companies. So it gives you a more informed view while tracking these companies also, and you're also free to choose. And because we run a mutual fund product, it gives the investor a way to invest in rupees and take the money out in rupee, We manage the forex risk by hedging some of the forex currency risk ourselves. And it's a more tax efficient way because we limit that exposure to about 30% of the portfolio, which lets us become an Indian equity mutual fund. So there are several ways to invest. I'm not saying there is only one way to do it. Uh, Like I said, ETFs are there, index funds are there. You can put your own money there. You can also have a mixed approach like
0: we are doing. Uh, I think uh, people are spoiled for choice now. You mentioned that you limit that to 30%, but that 30% percent does it vary or is it also more or less static i mean you know is is it like do you bring that to zero as well or it's mostly around say 25 to 30 percent from a
1: regulatory point of view we cannot exceed 35 percent, but from a historical point of view we have stayed in the range of 25 to 30 uh, over the past eight years so that's been more or less static i would say and there's opportunities Uh, also available so it's also a a function of having companies to buy and invest and stay invested in that period of time So valuations are at a tear in global markets and we're unable to find good ideas. We have an option to reduce the global exposure
0: and uh, invest more in domestic markets or stay in cash if both markets are equally expensive. So, uh, you know, we've spoken about the international market, but coming back to the Indian market, uh, are there any particular uh, sectors, segments, you know, how are you looking at the overall Indian space right now? Uh, you know, the commodity has been on tier. Some of the you know steel and chemical companies have done well. IT companies are also trying to catch up now. I mean, overall market has gone up as well. But from a next couple of years perspective, do you think certain sectors going to do better? So there are
1: several sectors. So for example, I just walk you through the journey of the portfolio. So if you see the portfolio or an average of PPFS mutual fund, the FlexiCap fund I'm talking about, because it's the oldest uh, scheme that we are mm-hmm. running. That portfolio has not changed very dramatically so we have a churn ratio of about less than 10 percent on an average it has rarely gone beyond 20 percent what that means is when we look at companies we look at holding them for at least five years and we also communicate to investors that if you don't have a horizon of five years please don't give your money to us from that point of view we need to look at a longer term thing so the current portfolio is structured around uh, companies like technology services companies digital advertising businesses uh, e-commerce retail Uh, then there is auto companies, Uh, then there are uh, financial services companies which are on the lending side as well as the non-lending and transaction fee based side. So these are basically capital market intermediaries like exchanges or even the lending side we have only a portfolio of three banks. What we realize is you build a portfolio of these things and you keep on adjusting based on your outlook where you think that the opportunity is better for a particular period of time. So for example in the last uh, since the pandemic began the lockdowns began we strategically reduced our exposure to the lending businesses because we were we knew that these are good companies to own in the portfolio to some extent but we did not know uh, uh, how badly the npas effect might hurt their balance sheets over a long period of time so in the short term we knew there will be some pain in the longer term these are good businesses so we strategically reduced our exposure to some of the lenders uh, and we added to some of the intermediary companies like the capital market intermediaries i mentioned earlier We also continuously kept on adding to opportunities where technology will actually improve the prospects of these companies' uh, adoption of technology. So for example, the enterprise software, we have so many companies who are uh, selling software, selling cloud services. So we added to that area of the portfolio. We realized our IT services business also, which were actually confused of the demand scenario in the first quarter of the lockdown. Immediately following the next quarter, they were saying that, hey, uh, there's going to be actually bumper demand. We uh, can't hire enough. Uh, so in the quarter, you saw the reversal of demand happening in some of these sectors. And that actually also led us to make sure that, okay, this particular sector is important from a tailwind of business point of view. So we retain some of the holdings in that portfolio as well. So it's a diversification across different sectors. Uh, we think we hope that everything does well. But we know that realistically some of the ideas will not play out uh, in the near term. They, will might, they might take a little longer to play out. And till that happens, some of the other ideas like you mentioned, the cyclicals, the metals, and all the other... Uh, ideas, they will take the market to a different level and we will underperform at that point. So that's perfectly fine. As long as the longer term performance is stable, the absolute returns are good. At the same time, we beat the indices that we have chosen to a certain extent, we are okay. I mean, that's very comfortable for us. As long as we don't lose money. So the point is protect whatever you have and not take some rash decisions because this is something which is fancy in the market we have to chase it right now and we don't do that
0: so just to follow up on that you know i think in a recent communication you guys have indicated that you know you'll be investing more in uh, small cap companies going forward so what is the thought here is there a more recency bias to that so what the communication intended was uh, as the fund sizes become a little larger the
1: ability to buy large quantities of a particular business which might be a small mid or even uh, slightly closer to the large cap it becomes limited Uh, one thing is of course market volumes are sometimes not in our favor so you have to look for block deals bulk deals to acquire the shares of a company you like secondly uh, you might also hit the paid up capital limit for each and every company that we are looking at so if you like a business which is in the mid to small category uh, but we may not be able to pick up a large chunk of that business. But there are four or five other companies in the mid-to-size category that we also like. So we are okay to stretch a little bit in terms of adding a few more mains in the portfolio. That's what we meant.
0: Let's talk about the risk management here. So what's our, your and the fund's uh, risk management process? You know, How do you look at things uh, from the risk management point of view? From technical point of view, I think liquidity risk, uh,
1: some of the commitment risk. For example, if you bought something and you realize the business is bad, i mean then you have to get out of it you cannot just hope that the company does well so selection risk is always there where you build a portfolio of companies and some of them will not do well some of them will really do well as a business not as a stock stock is secondary thirdly uh, the three cliched parameters i mentioned right i mean do you understand a company's management well the thought process and their ability to run that business is this business going to be a good quality business i mean we are seeing the numbers today it might be say high return on capital business over the past 10 years but will the next 10 years mimic what has happened in the past 10 years or is it going to be materially different and that is where we spend most of our time trying to understand as a team and we debate this even internal presentations debate all these things uh, as to where uh, this company is growing over a trajectory over a period of time you know, as compared to some other company in the sector and thirdly we don't want to overpay and that is more of a subjective call it, it, I, I don't think i can ever pinpoint to you that this is the right valuation for something uh, we are buying. In fact, we might, as we keep on evaluating something, we might keep on buying as the price has gone up over a period of time because we feel that the business's value has also gone up in that particular period. So the valuation is justified. So you can keep on adding a business, like you say, you keep adding up as the price keeps going down. At the same time, we may not chase something which is uh, falling quite dramatically, or we may also chase some stock which has fallen dramatically. We realize that the market is unfairly, uh, valued some company and the stock has been beaten down momentarily and we would do that. Again, these are not, I would say, written in stone kind of thing. It is something where we just know that in a particular business, it makes sense to chase valuation and liquidity is there. In a particular business, it may not make sense to chase valuation because sector might, outlook may not be that great. So I think different companies require different ways of looking at risk parameters, but this is how you build a portfolio. And most importantly, you diversify. You don't get stuck in a particular sector with a large chunk of your capital over there or you don't expose yourself too much to one particular company where you are unable to then uh, mitigate your risk because your portfolio will move every time the company moves up and down in the stock market. So diversify meaningfully, diversify geographically, uh, not overpay for good uh, companies you like. And uh, always have a grocery list of businesses which you like and you may want to buy or sell at a particular price. That is the broad risk management framework.
0: Now, the topic of what the asset light or asset heavy, right? I mean, you know, which has a stronger outlook as per you guys? Platform companies continue to grow shareholder value or will they be outperformed by CapEx heavy businesses, which in in current scenario looks like? Uh, What do you guys think about that? I think to categorize just by CapEx, is a little unfair.
1: Because where is the CAPEX happening is a very important question to understand. It's like an incremental investment that the business is doing. If a CAPEX is going in an area where the business has a high chance of growing their business because of that CAPEX uh, and return on capital will not suffer on that new investment, then I think that CAPEX is justified. And you should reward that CAPEX because people have thought of putting that capital there. So you cannot create a company like Amazon by not investing in CAPEX. Uh, So if you look at the asset increases in companies like Amazon, or even Facebook, these so-called platform businesses, these actually have a lot of capex uh, they're doing right now to scale their operations on the ground as well as in the cloud. So many of these companies generate that kind of cash flow to sustain the capex internally and don't have to go to the market, which is a good thing. You want companies to do that, and they're also able to expand themselves in different areas. So sometimes you might feel, okay, if uh, a company like Amazon made a phone, the Fire Phone, which was a failure, at that time it did not catch on in the market uh, it never actually the, nobody can talk, nobody talks about that phone anymore because it doesn't exist so yeah it's a failure they invested in that area but did it break the company's balance sheet no so it's a calculated risk somebody took and it failed and you cannot punish people for trying different things and uh, getting some things wrong and getting something right it's less like a portfolio manager you might have a portfolio of companies but you might get some ideas wrong and you might get some ideas right broadly if the direction is right in the good is uh, trending upwards in a good direction, you've made more good choices than uh, mistakes, then I think it's okay. And that's why I don't look at CAPEX as a binary thing, whether it's CAPEX or no CAPEX. Of course, you want companies which are asset-light, it makes your return on capital look a little attractive. But if the CAPEX is in the right direction, and if it gives you a strategic advantage, uh, then I think it should be looked at in a different way. And uh, should be given
0: the due regard in the valuation. Aspect. Biggest hallmark of a good management is how efficient they are from the capital allocation point of view, right? The best management is always the best capital allocator and they will always create a lot of value uh, for the company and for the shareholder over a long period of time. So I, I think we have spoken in, uh, you know, good enough of time on spend on, you know, the whole investing part. And I want to come to some of the, your personal stuff as well. So I see that you are a very um, you know cross-sectional learner, and you apply learning from books. And you mentioned some of those uh, comic strips, documentaries, and even movies. Right? And you mentioned one of them, uh, you know, during our conversation. And and for our listeners, we will actually uh, put them all as part of our show notes. Beyond that, would you like to recommend any other books or any uh, documentaries or anything for our audience? So I think it's uh, it will be uh, and
1: just to recommend one or two things because there's so many things we learn from the daily basis. Uh, So what I do is on my Twitter timeline, I keep putting stuff which I find interesting. So maybe if uh, viewers are or the listeners are interested, they can keep a look at my Twitter timeline periodically. And I also learn from other people. So many people are sharing it. So I also share what they are sharing, uh, good podcasts or good documentaries, good films. Uh, So of course, I learn from other people's recommendations. And if somebody says this is a good book, I will put it in my reading list. I will buy it on my Kindle and read it later. But the most important thing for me is whenever I learn is uh, what do I want to understand? And if that question is, uh, in my mind, a little bit clear, then I know which areas I want to search on the internet and which books are relevant in that area. I can dig them out over a period of time. If a particular movie has referred to something in a particular way, then you get a different context. So I read a lot of fiction. I watch a lot of fiction. Uh, I also read a lot of non-fiction. And I watch a lot of nonfiction. But none of them are, uh, I cannot put a pattern to it, say that this is how it all comes together. Because I don't know. This is all in hindsight. So when I look back in time, I know that, okay, I've learned from all these things. But there are so many things which have not been very useful. They're just for entertainment. So they may have gone in uh, the back of my mind and I've forgotten about them. But the things that stick with you is somewhere you can connect it to something which you're thinking about. And that's the reason you uh, observe something uh, which clicks something in fiction or nonfiction. And then that becomes part of your thought process. Then you build on top of that by reading something more. Then you extensively use uh, search resources like Google and things like that. And you go into that rabbit hole of, you no know, link after link after link after link and you keep climbing down that rabbit hole and hopefully you stop somewhere meaningfully when you are satisfied with it is enough that you've learned. Uh, I think the more interesting thing is being in an organization like EPFS, it gives you the opportunity. So, I mean, I told you about the library, right? So, we have been carefully curating the library now. It's about 450 books right now. And even uh, we encourage all the staff members, not just the research team, to just go and pick up a book from the library and read. It might be something which you never read about. It might open up some thought process in your mind, which will be useful for you personally, or might be useful in your day-to-day job, or it may not be at all. It's just for entertainment. And I think you pick something up, and it then connects different things. You will not know until you read it or you observe it. So we also screen documentaries and films uh, at the office now. Unfortunately, in the pandemic, we haven't really do that. But we used to screen them just to know that, okay, we have learned from this particular thing. Can we watch a documentary which talks about it in a better way? Because sometimes watching something in an audio-visual manner sticks with you much longer than reading a book and then visualizing it and remembering it. And with books, the problem is you have to keep going back to them. You cannot just read it once. And so for me, at least I cannot read it once and remember everything. I have to read something two, three times to actually etch it into my memory that this is something which is very important. So I meticulously note down everything I everything is digitized now because I used to have these diaries and notebooks in the past which became very hard to index and find information in so in one uh, streak of uh, madness I just scanned everything and put everything on the computer and I realized my handwriting was not good enough to recognize everything so eventually over the past four or five years I realized I digitized most of my notes so I can search and go back to the archives and see if something is worth remembering something is worth using, uh, something maybe just useful to read again, because it was a timeless thought, which you wanted to go back to. I think that was enabled even because of the organization, which pushed it to learn all these things. So you can build these habits, uh, push yourself to aggregate data properly, push yourself to learn from different sources. And of course you talk to different people. They also give you good references to read, really good films to watch. Things like Twitter will allow you to broadcast it to everyone. And then from some corner, somebody will DM you, hey, did you watch this particular movie about this particular thing which you had tweeted about? Then it's gold, right? I mean, you get
0: so many different resources to enjoy on the uh, the comfort of your home. Yeah, a couple of things, you know, uh, I've realized that I buy too many books than I read. So a lot of them books are just lying on my bookshelf and, you know, which is I've not read. So I I don't know what's your reading style like. Uh, Secondly, you mentioned a bit about the journaling part and, you know, a lot of people are, and I've also started using some of this new age form, like, right? you know, uh, Rome Research, uh, uh, Notions. And, you know, those are basically databases to, uh, put down uh, some of the thoughts so that you can you can reference them later so i don't know what's your i mean you know you said that you digitalized most of this thing and you can reference back but any other uh, thoughts uh, i mean bo- on both the topics one how do you read so many books uh you know which i find very difficult and uh you know how do you journal your thoughts so i'll talk about journaling first that is something which i've
1: evolved to my own level of comfort now Uh, and because so I use tools which are expensive but they're not required you can also use a cheap 200 rupees keyboard and a basic desktop computer to type everything and put it into something like a google drive or something where it's accessible on all your devices wherever you want on google drive the basic memory you get is 15 gb i think and that is more than sufficient for all your emails photos anything combined if you manage it properly so one thing is to have some sort of a cloud interface where all your devices can access to that. Your thoughts are there. If you are supposed caught in a, a waiting line in a queue somewhere and you have one hour left to reach your window or whatever you're doing, yeah, pull out your mobile device and read your notes uh, if you feel like it. Pull out a podcast and listen to it and take your notes in the Google Drive or Google Docs so that you can go back to it later. So that habit is something it's day-to-day. It comes up based on everybody's comfort level. People pick up which tools they want to use. Uh, I, in fact, wrote a nice post called Productivity Tools for Investors I'll link it up for you later so that you can put it in your show yep. notes. Summarizing all these things into that particular post. And a lot of things are not changed yet. And on the reading part, I have the same uh, disease like you. Uh, I buy a lot of books. I uh, don't finish a lot of them. But over a period of time, I realized that I skim very heavily. So I go through a lot of material very quickly. Uh, I skim through many topics. Uh, and if something catches my attention, which I want to read further, so that need to read a particular topic or understand a particular topic, if it's there, then I Put the effort to read it completely and then find other uh, materials which is allied to that or contrary to that or something which people have said that these two things go together if you read it well or these two things if you watch together they go well so i, I spend time from that intent point of view so once the intent is clear then i go deep dive and finish books uh, cover to cover if at all even sometimes twice uh, but if some intent is not clear and i just want to know what this particular guy is talking about so if there is a non-fiction book Many times what happens is to promote the book, the authors will go on a podcast tour and they will talk about their ideas in that book. It's good to listen to a podcast interview with the author. Then you get a general gist whether you want to deep dive into the topic or not. Uh, secondly, if you think that is worth deep diving into, but you don't know if the 300 pages, 500 pages is something you can actually have time for, then start skimming through the chapters. So I read on my Kindle, so it becomes very easy. Uh, In a little bit of time, I find somewhere I use it to just go to the chapters quickly, just to see a few paragraphs, two topics that I discussed, go to the index of the book and see what topics have been covered uh, in what depth. So you can just go back to some topics and and the Kindle, you can actually click on the index item. It goes to the page where you want to go. So it's very useful. It's just like a normal book in a way. It's a tool, again, you can do it with a physical book also. There's no problem with that. Uh, the problem with physical books is I don't have storage space anymore. So I gave away all my physical books and I exclusively read it on the Kindle now. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a tool that you use. Eventually you adapt to your lifestyle what makes sense for you. Uh, but my thing is go with the intent, focus on what you want to learn and then learn whatever you can about it. Or if you want to just be broadly aware of things, just skim through a lot of things. You may have purchased the book, but it may not be worth reading the entire book. The author got its due work in terms of the money you paid for the book. Uh, And you learned a little bit about a topic which you otherwise would not have learned about. And maybe in the future, you know that this topic you want to learn, you know where that book is in your collection. I think it just opens up these uh, weak links to various topics in your mind, which you can then strengthen later on by reading
0: more about them and make it into a highway. Uh, You know, our show is called uh, Breaking Investment Stereotypes. So any investing stereotypes that you want to highlight for one to avoid?
1: I I have succumbed to this. For such a long time, everybody knows that you no know, correlation is not causation, but the problem is we are uh, such sticklers for causation, so we just want an answer for everything that you no, know, why this particular thing happened, uh, and you no, know, how it played out completely. We might see the outcome uh, happen, and we might immediately want to go back and you know, go to the cause of that particular thing. Uh, I think that is the biggest stereotype I've seen. Where, uh, of course, we know that it is not correlation, correlation not the same, but. Trying to correlate and force fitting it to a cause and effect scenario is something where is the biggest problem of most investors. I think I have succumbed to it more than many people I know, because every time when I go back to my notes, I realize that okay, I have thought of something in the past which was just a weak correlation, which I force fitted into all the theories that I want to talk about the business, and eventually it linked me to a direction. If it and the worst thing is if it works out in your favor, if you accidentally make money on their idea, it cements in your mind that you are so right about this particular correlation being a causation. And if you lose money, you will curse yourself. Oh, how can I make a mistake like this? And so I think if you are able to disconnect those two things properly, and I have not been able to yet. I'm still learning. Uh, But I think correlation and causation, that particular debate that happens in our minds, the the urgency of finding a cause. So for example, now some, some things are so difficult for me to understand. I've Realize that I will not be able to build my circle of competence in this particular industry. So specialty chemicals, for that example, it took me a long time to understand it, but I have not been able to build a good grasp of how these businesses actually work. So I've given it to somebody else in my team. That person is better at understanding that sector. So when I realized that I cannot do it, then I had to, like physically keep distance from that particular topic. And of course, it will help. It will not help us because sometimes there will be some good companies when the analyst will have to then highlight it to us and we will have to then make up our conviction based on that person's conviction to either invest or not invest in those ideas. But yeah, I think if we can control that particular causation correlation thing a little better, it is useful because not everything can be answered. Some things are just too difficult to understand and you just have to let it go sometimes. Maybe it comes back to you later in a more simplified manner. Somebody does a good job in simplifying it for you. And then you suddenly opens up. Oh no,
0: This is how it happened. Uh, who will be your uh, investing ideal um, and and a life ideal? Who whom do you look up to?
1: I look up to people who are the closest to me.
0: So I used to
1: look up to Parag a lot. I look up to Rajiv a lot. Uh, there are a lot of other people uh, out there who I know a little bit about them. So I don't. I cannot say I look up to them completely in all aspects of life. But at least in terms of investing, in terms of uh, doing the legwork to understand things. I think most of the peers who are there in our market right now, the fund managers, the PMS managers, all these people, uh, when we interact with each other, we realize the amount of effort people put. Uh, that actually energizes me. It, it tells me that, okay, this is, okay, If somebody else is doing so much effort. What stops me from doing that? Because we are in the same business. We are earning money in the same markets. We are probably having same investors also sometimes. Uh, the, the effort is uh, is not optional. You have to put the effort and that energizes me. And like the conversation we're having right now, uh, I've had the privilege to talk to many people in the industry, also the same thing, that how did you pick up a habit of reading books? How did you pick up a habit of uh, developing your competence in this particular sector? So for example, uh, one thing I like uh, what Rajiv does, Rajiv Tarkar does, uh, is he, and now, since everybody works from home, it's a little difficult to do that, but when he used to come to office, he used to take one day of the week for just long-term reading, just reading. So at that day, it was a Tuesday of uh, every week, used to just say, okay, this day I'm going to devote only to reading what he wants to read. It can be either about the businesses that they're tracking or some non-fiction book or some fiction book, whatever he wants to read. used to isolate himself into an uh, area where people could not physically reach him immediately. But you can call him if it's an urgency or emergency. Uh, but I like that habit a lot. And uh, it's a very interesting thing, which even Cal Newport talks about in deep work, that you give, that, give yourself that time to absorb something for a long stretch of time with good concentration nobody can distract you nobody can disturb you and some of these habits you pick up so i think uh, there's no one person i would say but these two people who were closest to me uh, i used to see them every day uh, they are the great influences for me in terms of work ethic and other people i've learned bits and pieces from and i'll keep learning from them so it's, it's, it's a continuous process i cannot say that okay this is it i know everything yeah. that i'm supposed to know right now
0: coming to the last part of our uh, you know talk so this is a question I ask everyone uh, in, in our uh, podcast. And, and I know that you are still very young, but if you have to give one ad- few, one or two advice to your Rana Konkar 24, 20-year-old, 20 what will that be? Okay, this is not a regret or a refrain, but I would tell my
1: 20-year-old self to uh, get a good night's sleep, uh, get up early in the morning, uh, exercise every day if you can, uh, if you can find a time and uh, keep your energy level at a good level so there are a lot of unhealthy habits i am trying to unwind myself off and because because you know that information flows every day you want to know whatever everything is out there It's it's a it becomes an addiction afterwards and you spend too much time not taking care of your body not taking care of your mind which is through rehabilitation rest and all those things i would say you will still be able to do everything by developing good habits to learn Uh, try and sleep a little bit longer at night try and get a little bit of a rejuvenation for the next day Uh, so I used to famously sleep very less and I used to feel proud about it until I realized that the long-term effects may not be good and then I started reading about the research then I realized okay this is not a good idea so then which forced me to build good data habits so that okay how can I do this same amount of work in less time now that you have built these huge information sources coming towards you you have to filter them So then you become a little bit more ruthless in managing your time. You make sure that you give time to certain activities more than you do to certain activities. And then you also focus on sleeping. So what used to be a rounding error of the day, that whatever hours are left you used to sleep, that became now a priority. That you have to sleep for these many hours, then how much time is left, how much time you commute, how much time you spend to reading, how much time you devote to your family, everything else. So I think I would tell myself that, you know, you focus on your sleep, focus on your mental health, focus on your ability to manage your day-to-day time in such a way that you give importance to your body as well not just your mind so i think uh, i don't think there is any other advice i would give because i i, I would repeat everything that i did uh, because i reached this level and i would say this is a repeatable thing i can do afterward. but if one thing i could change and i would inform that person is to you can do all these things you can get to the same level but you can also do it with good sleep
0: <laughs> yeah you know that's a very interesting and an important point uh, which you mentioned, and there is a guy called Matthew Walker. I don't know whether you've, yeah. you've heard about and read his book. Yes. Um, so he's got an interesting, you know, you can find uh, about his talks on a lot of podcasts, and you know, he's a he's a good guy to to read about and and uh, you know listen to uh, when you want to know more about how important sleep is. So, 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 you know, with that, we come to our conclusion and uh, Ronak, thank you so much. It's been a very, uh, you know, great conversation we've had. Uh, uh, our listeners would have really learned a lot from this. So thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rajkumar and Multiply for inviting me. It was an absolute pleasure.